From God we come, and to God do we return. So much of Muslim life revolves around circles. The circles of celestial orbits which determine our prayer times, the circles of the lunar calendar, the circle of tawbah, of falling into error, trying, falling and trying again, and the circles of our bodily lives, formed by an earthen clay, walking upon the earth for a time and then returning to the earth to furnish new life. So much of human history has involved respecting and honoring these interconnected circles of living and returning. For thousands of centuries in human history, our built spaces, material objects, and even understandings of ourselves involved a recognition of returning, first to the ground and then back to God. It's hard for me as a modern to even imagine that the objects I use in my daily life, my computer, my phone, my clothing, even my pen, so few of those objects could go back into the ground. Instead, they will outlive me by centuries. Like so many aspects of modern life, the Hajj has unfortunately become another instance where human activity causes detrimental impact upon our environment. From the carbon footprint of air travel to the jaw-dropping amount of plastic used and discarded during the Hajj itself, our pilgrimage to the holy cities has become merely another instance where the lack of wisdom, foresight, and sustainability at the heart of modern progress narratives makes itself so painfully visible. If the Hajj is a return like no other, then surely we can imagine a 21st century Hajj in which we honor and safeguard our tradition and the natural world. In this final episode of our Hajj series, we come full circle to imagine a Hajj of the future, which is ennobled by a return to wholeness and to the generous sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. I'm joined today by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, who shares his recollections as a haji and helps us imagine what Hajj can be going forward if we all become not just conscious, but conscientious pilgrims. Abdul Hakim Murad is the Dean of the Cambridge Muslim College and the Sheikh Zayed Lecturer of Islamic Studies in the Faculty of Divinity at Cambridge University. Sheikh Abdul Hakim, this podcast has focused on the theme of gathering in the Hajj through many lenses of the various rituals and moments in the Hajj, as well as the more macro cosmology of sacred places and sacred time. And since this is the last episode, can you give us your unique perspective on the Hajj as a truly conscious gathering of humanity? Well, the Hajj really represents uh, the principle of uh, unity and multiplicity. Everybody goes for the one, which is what the uh, Talbiyah is about. The Labbaik, Allahumma Labbaik, is about the uh, uncompromising unitive nature of the Abrahamic divine. But at the same time, of course, there is the uh, almost indefinite and quite uh, dazzling plurality of human beings. 
the uh, tension between the two is so beautifully articulated by the uh, sanctuary itself with uh, the, the Kaaba symbolizing the aseity, the uh, eternal unknowability, the veiledness of the one at the center, uh, categorically unique. And then around it, you've got two million people, three million people, every conceivable language, uh, the genders, everything is present. So you have this uh, kind of juxtaposition, this binary of the one and the many. And the, the gathering part of it, of course, is it's supposed to be a crowd. That's what the word ifada means. And ifada is the word that the Qur'an uh, itself uses. When you come in a crowd from Arafat, it's a, it's a collective exercise. Um, and part of the discipline of the Hajj, of course, which is uh, quite emphasized in the relevant hadith, is to maintain uh, beautiful adab with all of the other people, because crowds can be difficult. Crowds have almost a mind of their own sometimes. Uh, and if the, uh, the crowding, the bottlenecks, the stampedes uh, are to be avoided, then everybody has to be more attentive to the human many than they are really at any other time. Generally, we find that uh, the adab of congregation is important in all of our rituals, in Ramadan, for instance, in uh, the prayer, sacred places, family life. This is very much the, the religion of adab. Uh, but particularly during the hajj, there should be no bad language and there should be no... Uh, Roughness, uh, there should be no argumentation during the Hajj. So if somebody uh, pokes you in the back with a strangely sharp umbrella, uh, you don't notice, or if you do, you just meet them with, with a smile. Now, this is part of the usual Muslim adab anyway, of course, but on the Hajj, it's, it's particularly particularly vital. So uh, the throng of Mu'adab, disciplined and courteous human beings around the one really is the kind of mapping out in one place of what the entire ummah ideally what the whole of bani adam is supposed to be because of course it is the uh, recollection of the beginning of time and the end of time which are collective events the beginning of time uh, when we all said bala shahidna yes we bear witness uh, of which the Telbiya, the Labbaika, is supposed to be uh, a kind of echo. Mm -hmm. Bala, yes, Labbaik is also like, yes, we still remember, we were present with you in the complete Ifada of, all, of Bani Adam at the beginning of time, when we all bore witness to you, which is one of the significances of the Black Stone. It represents the reaffirmation of that Mithaq, that covenant. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was collected. It was taken from the from all of the seed of, of Benny Adam. And then the end time, of course, which is represented particularly by the, the Wukhof, the standing at Arafat. Uh, there we recall that as we were together at the beginning, so too we will be together, everybody, all the nations, all the ages, uh, believers, unbelievers, everybody present, all Benny Adam at the end, in order to see the consequences of the way in which we responded to that Bala Shahidna and to that Labbaik. So there's a perfect uh, cosmological symmetry, really, about the way in which the, the plurality of, of Bani Adam is, is managed and uh, represented during the ceremonies of the Hajj.
you spoke of beautiful tension, beautiful adab, and this kind of timeless quality that's there in the Kaaba. And is that something specific to the Kaaba? I mean, is the Kaaba a very unique place in being able to engender this kind of behavior and this kind of timelessness? Well, the Kaaba is, of course, veiled and it's non-representational and it's mysterious. Everybody has a sense of the mysterium tremendum, the, uh, the immense Jalali mystery of the divine when approaching the Kaaba. And as I said, you have the, uh, the enormous crowd circling it with the maximal differentiation of human beings. And then you have the complete unicity of that symbol of that which lies beneath the Beit al-Ma'amur, which is ultimately a representation, as even the least educated Hajjis know, of the uh, unknowable eternity, the immutability of, of, of the divine. So as a symbol, which of course, like all great symbols, has a kind of alchemical effect on, on uh, those who experience it, it's, it's absolutely perfect. It's the perfect representation of what monotheism is about. But of course, the Kaaba has its role in uh, sacred history as well. Um, the Hajjis remember how it was resurrected, repristinated, purified by Ibrahim and Ismail. And the historians recall that Ismail is actually buried in the Hajar, which is next to the Kaaba. It's very much an Abrahamic century, as well as a primordial and an Adamic one. So it represents both the timelessness, uh, the self-referential mystery of the divine, which is the first Shahada, but also the divine as experienced and operating in linear time in history, uh, which is the, for us preeminently the Abrahamic story. So there's a kind of uh, chronological as well as eternal dimension which is represented by the Kaaba. And I think all of the, the Hajjis, when they're there, part of their reverence to the Kaaba and their acknowledgement of the perfection of it as, a, as an active symbol, uh, is due to their consciousness of these two axes of the, of the, the Kaaba's sacred function. So it's another tension is between the eternity and the kind of temporality and ever-changing nature of the world itself. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we've touched on repeatedly in this podcast is how the Muslim community's way of traveling to and experiencing uh, the holy cities has changed so drastically, especially in the last 100 and 150 years. So how have changes in Muslim mobility, as well as changes to the sacred sites themselves, changed the way that Muslims experience travel to and participation in the Hajj? Well, of course, Muslims down the centuries from the beginning have recorded their experience of the Hajj. We have so many travelogues. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, sadly brief, was by uh, the British Muslim Hajji, William Williamson, who saw the Hajj when it was still really a fully traditional event. He went there during the Ottoman times in the 1870s, I think. A guy from Bristol who converted and did the Hajj several times and took the Hajj caravan from Baghdad to the Hejaz on the road that was built and watered by uh, Princess uh, Zubaydah in the time of Harun al-Rashid, one of the great routes of the Islamic world. There's the commercial routes like the Silk Road, but there's also the pilgrimage roads which go everywhere, which sometimes overlap and sometimes are quite distinct. And the fortresses and the water systems of, of the Darab Zubaydah are still there in the deserts, 
in Arabia. Um, you can visit them on a four-wheel drive and you can see the, uh, you know, the enormous nature of the infrastructure that classical Islam uh, developed. But Williamson said that it was a camel train, of course, um, and uh, it took about a month, a month and a bit, Baghdad to Mecca. And that was a very useful transitional time, as well as, of course, the time waiting for the you know, these thousands of camels, it was really brilliantly organized by his account, could get going, that on the journey, it was all about sitting on your camel, or as many people did, walking next to your camel, or sitting down and watching the whole thing go by with the flags and the different nationalities and the women in their palanquins and children messing around and goats and sheep that were being brought along to feed people as they went, uh, thousands upon thousands of camels. It was an extraordinary spectacle and he liked to go up to the front. He had a very fast camel uh, and then sit down and rest and watch the entire caravan go by just to see the sheer kind of carnival-like festival of it. But of course what people were doing is they were singing, they were doing dhikr, it was all in shared, people were reciting the Qur'an, there were impromptu classes going on, the scholars would still be teaching, they'd have some of their students with them. It was a kind of a mobile Zawiya or mobile university. So people had, as it were, a month to detox from dunya before they sighted the holy city. So they had enough time to get into the zone, as we say nowadays. Today it's quite different, of course, you step off the plane having just dealt with you know, Terminal B at Gatwick and there you are in Jeddah and there's the high-speed train and whoop, you know, one moment you're in Guildford or somewhere, the next moment you're standing in front of Abraham's ancient house. And we don't really have enough time to transition, I think, from the profane to the sacred. And I think that uh, really diminishes the, the often you know, shattering, transformative, Talbot-inducing effect that the Hajj has always had on people. Uh, obviously, uh, we can't go back to the time of the camel train. Uh, there's just too many people doing it. But there has been, I think, a qualitative decline. And you can see that sometimes in the adab of people. Um, they're grumbling about the hotels and they're behaving almost as if it's a kind of tourism experience. Uh, whereas, in fact, of course, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. <laughs> it is a time of... Uh, discomfort. Uh, the ihram is not really a terribly easy thing to manage uh, for days after days and uh, it, it's supposed to be an ascetical experience. Um, and nowadays people uh, don't really have the time, I think, to get themselves into a mental space that prepares them for that. And so they tend to grumble, I think, a lot more than they used to, even though the Hajj is a lot safer and more comfortable than it's ever been. So in addition to our time and our sort of qualitative experience being diminished, another consequence of the modern Hajj certainly is that our impact on the space itself is is so much more, um, I think that's even just visible through just the sheer amount of waste that's generated through, through our pilgrimage. So one thing I wanted to speak with you about specifically is, are there ways we can imagine the Hajj of the present and the future, which enables not just a conscious gathering, but a conscientious commitment to safeguarding our natural world and our holy cities. What would this kind of gathering even look like? 
And does it require an understanding of communities? You've talked about this concept of umum elsewhere. Um, does it require an understanding of umum that takes us out of ourselves as the only gatherers there? Well, in a sense, the idea of a sanctuary, which is obviously what the visit is all about, uh, extends not just to human beings who have the right of sanctuary, haqal jiwar, in Allah's house, but also to animals, interestingly. Uh, there are quite strict rules in Ihram about not killing animals. And if you do, if you go hunting or something in your Ihram, it can invalidate uh, a lot of the things of, of Hajj. You have to make a sacrifice. and uh, So the, it's often observed that the <coughs> sanctuaries of Mecca and Medina are the world's first sort of national parks or wildlife reserves uh, where animals you know, could walk around completely unharmed. Even the people who are living in Mecca wouldn't dare to interfere with uh, the pigeons, with the wild donkeys, with the uh, wild cats that still exist in the desert. They're ostriches. They have a lot of stuff in the desert in Arabia. Uh, so that principle that it is a sanctuary not just for human worshippers but for the animal orders of creation as well I think indicates one of the things that needs to be done in the minds of the, the Hajjis uh, that they need to connect with uh, the stark beauty of desert nature that was always part of the experience that Medina was this incredibly kind of lush green oasis and Mecca was about the driest, uh, most arid, desiccated conurbation on earth with those bare mountains. It's like being on the surface of Mars, really. Uh, hardly anything seems to grow that. Uh, and experiencing that starkness, the sort of almost vision-inducing rigor and beauty of uh, the, the mountainous desert, something that I think uh, people need to reconnect with, that on their way they shouldn't be looking at the uh, uh, the perfume and the watch advertisements on the billboards as they go up, but they should be concentrating on the beauty of the mountains, trying to focus on the aridity of the desert, the miracle of life, uh, the fragility of life, uh, all of these uh, traditional spiritual lessons which the Hajj journey has always helped people with historically and we need to look past the bright lights and the kind of Dubai mall culture aspect of the holy city and try and reconnect with the beauty of the sky, the beauty of the people, uh, the beauty of the mountains, wherever we can focus on nature as witness to the sort of divine creative beauty, that's what we should be looking at, not at the bright lights. You are also a haji yourself, a haji yourself. And um, if I can ask you now some questions about your own uh, mm -hmm. experience as a pilgrim on Umrah and, of course, on Hajj, um, maybe we can start with your own Hajj and how you, how that took place, when it was, and um, if you can tell us a little bit about that and especially how you kind of the journey, preparation for journey to experience of and return from? Well, uh, in a sense, I almost cheated because I was living in Jeddah at the time, which is, uh, they call it Dehlis al-Haramain, the kind of portico of the holy cities. And as the Hajj season approaches, 
when I was living there back in the 80s, the rhythm of the city really changed very much and you saw the flocks of sheep being driven through the streets and people in Ihram and crowds starting to move in the direction of the, the city. I lived on the Mecca Road. So in a sense, all you needed to do was step out of your front door during Thul Hejjah and the crowds would carry you along whether you liked it or not and you'd find yourself at the Kaaba. It was where everybody was headed. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything like the traditional month getting sore on a camel uh, experience that people used to have. But uh, the, I did it several times and I found that useful because particularly if you're from the West where there's a certain sort of spectacle-oriented, experience-oriented mentality that goes with travelling. Here's a picture of me next to the Taj Mahal, here's a picture of me halfway up the Eiffel Tower, etc. Strange, really, strange thing to do, um, to go around taking pictures of yourself next to monuments that you know, culturally you probably don't relate to at all. Uh, and that, uh, that decadent sort of profane tourism really has to be exorcised because the Hajj is, it's really spectacular. Um, it offers scenes of severe grandeur that aren't rivaled by anything else on earth, as far as I know. The view um, from the foothills of Arafat, of the tent city, the view that you get from the roof of the Haram, looking down at millions of people doing their tawaf with the Kaaba, as it were, being carried aloft almost in triumph by the by the circling pilgrims, even though it takes maybe an hour and a half just to go around once because there's so many people, it's shattering. And everybody praying and everybody sort of half in tears. There's nothing like that visually on earth. And uh, if God forbid they ever did let tourists in, it would immediately become the world's leading tourist attraction because it's just so sensational visually. It, it's extraordinary. So it's important to get past that um, because that's really not what it's about. So what becomes particularly interesting is, well, so many things. Firstly, there's the kind of carnival-like atmosphere that seems to attach to so many Islamic things. Ramadan, for instance, looks like a time of real severity. It's kind of killjoy experience on the surface, but it's also a very festive time in an odd kind of way that newcomers to Islam find puzzling. Um, Jumu'ah prayer is kind of, again, sort of carnival. And that also on the Hajj, even though it's certainly not a hedonistic experience, there's a certain uh, joyfulness that people experience, particularly those who've been before and they find themselves back in the kind of uh, corrugated iron shanty town of Minna and it's just absolutely wonderful and they're so happy to be back. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of euphoria is very interesting. Uh, and unexpected um, to people who haven't seen that aspect of Islam before. And then the, uh, the enigma of the rituals, which are unlike anything else in Islam. There's nothing else in the fiqh that has tawaf and sa'i and a well and wakuf and all of that. It's, it's sui generis and unfamiliar, but everybody gets used to it right away and they seem to know exactly what to do, as if they've been doing it every day of their lives. There's a certain profound natural Muslimness about those surprising things that uh, people immediately relax into. Uh, but I suppose the most 
uh, revealing thing is the effect it has on people. Uh, I went up a couple of times with a bunch of bankers because <laughs> I was doing some work for a bank and so this was a cheap way for me to do a Hajj. So we get onto these uh, rather posh buses uh, and just to see how different people were when they went up, grumbling, complaining, arguing about paperwork, blah blah, talking about work. And then four or five days later on the same buses coming back, uh, sneezing and coughing and with you know, kind of scratching and their hair a catastrophe and their heads badly shaved and <laughs> uh, eaten things that haven't agreed with them. It, it is quite, uh, quite an ordeal. And the way in which they would look out for themselves and make sure that everybody in the bus had enough to eat and to drink and the courtesy and the Qur'an, uh, somehow this mysterious set of practices, these archetypal geometries of the cube and the straight line and the circles and this kind of ancient ceremonial has some kind of alchemical effect on people's souls. So that I found very impressive, seeing people who have been quite profane at the outset really being changed within a few days. Uh, how that works, <laughs> who knows? That is one of the enigmas of the Hajj. But yes, al Hajj al Mabrur, to be Mabrur, this is the term that we use, means, as it were, to be made good, to be uh, made innocent, comes from this Bir word. And it's a passive participle, the Hajj al Mabrur. And the Hajj is supposed to be the one who is made good, made innocent, washed, even though he really needs a shower, uh, by this enigma of the cube, the circle, the straight line, the throwing the stones, all of these apparently unfamiliar things. So, yeah, what you end up with is the inexplicability of the Hajj, an awareness that it really works. It's an incredible sort of factory of Taubas, millions of people turned around uh, and given memories that will keep their religiosity going until they die. Uh, but how it works, <laughs> who knows? It's one of God's mysteries and it's to do with the deep workings of the human heart and things that touch the heart and change it that are beyond the capacity of um, any formal discourse uh, or neuroscience or anything really to understand. All one knows is that the thing works. A theme that's come up a lot in our lived experience conversations in this podcast is how you're part of a crowd in the Hajj, but also somehow alone. And this was surprising for me to listen to as somebody who's never been on Hajj, that though you're a part of this grand crowd, that there's a kind of loneliness in the Hajj too. I was wondering in your experience, how did you, how did that, did that tension exist for you too, this crowd, but alone? Uh, well, it's obviously not uh, solitude, because uh, it's impossible to be alone on the Hajj, really. Uh, it is a collective Jama'i blessing. Um, people get lost, of course, um, and that's one of the things that the Saudi Boy Scouts do. They're in charge of lost persons. I remember once when we were in our tent, uh, one of the Boy Scouts came to the door of the tent, having heard that there were English speakers there, and he, he, he was with this 
I guess she was about 12 or 13 years old, American girl, who had never before in her life been outside Washington State. <laughs> and here she was in the Hajj, this most unfamiliar thing in the world with these three million people in this tent city and the shattering sun. And, the, <laughs> and she was lost, she'd lost her parents. Um, so she stayed with us a little while. She, they just parked her with us while they went to find them. And I think they were reunited finally. So I guess she was kind of really feeling alone, isolated. Although, of course, Hatch is a very safe place and things like that. It's just too many people around for any sort of familiar miscreancy to be possible. But uh, I think if there's a sense of loneliness, it is because the Hajj does confront you with its unfamiliarity with circumstances that really make you think. There's a certain familiarity that comes with praying Maghrib for the 5,000th time or doing Ramadan for the 20th time. But the Hajj is all new, especially the first time. It's kind of unfamiliar and much of it is spiritually quite confrontational. The, the, the confrontation with the Kaaba the first time, the experience of everything the sacrifice, the stoning of the pillars, the sh pillars, the shattering crowds there, Mount Arafat, it's all kind of new. And I think that when we're confronted by something really new, that's when we're more self-aware and we start to think, oh, well, this is strange, weird. How do I deal with this? And we become more conscious of ourselves and perhaps feel a little bit more vulnerable. So perhaps it's a vulnerability rather than a sense of solitude. But of course, in our life of du'a, we're all alone, really. And one of the beauties of the Hajj is uh, late afternoon on Arafat when the sun isn't so hot and everybody's out, bareheaded, under the, the sky, and everybody's making du'a, and you attach yourself to some group or other, somebody who knows what he's doing is reading a long, beautiful du'a, and yeah, uh, the tears flow, and it's staggering and that I think is when people feel that they are alone and helpless in the presence of the Almighty. They recall that they will come to God for as individuals on the last day and that they will stand alone for the judgment and they feel that immense sense of personal accountability and responsibility and vulnerability at that time. So I suppose that's the context where people might feel alone. I did, perhaps it's just they feel that they are individuals rather than that they feel they're solitary. I think it's more like that. Uh, and of course, a wonderful wake-up call for a lot of people who often, especially in our kind of dazed times, over-entertained times, are not really in touch with their own human subjectivity, but are just wandering from distraction to distraction. It's hard on the Hajj to do that. There's too much that immediately confronts you and demands a full attention and, and the fullness of, of your response. It's a form of thicker. And what did you take with you when you finished the Hajj? What did you bring back with you? Material object or otherwise? Well, material objects. <laughs> um, well, you can, of course, uh, pick up some nice things. The Indonesian Hajjis bring along batik fabrics some of the things the West Africans bring, some of the basket work is really nice. Uh, less and less crafts, I think, and more and more sort of chain stores in the malls of Mecca. That seems to be the model. Um, there's nothing wrong with shopping on the Hajj, but it's 
not really supposed to be the centre of things. So I'm not sure that, uh, I mean, people gave me books sometimes that would be useful. I still have books that I recall were pressed into my hand, sometimes by the authors on the, on, on the Hajj, uh, Sheikh Othman al-Hwaymi, the Tunisian alim, I did Hajj with him once, and he gave me his quite useful fiqh book um, with some fatwas, which I still have. So I guess it has the baraka of the Hajj about it. But um, people basically go back with um, a renewed awareness of the absolute seriousness of religion the sacrifice that it requires of us, the fact that we have been given a kind of uh, prequel of the last day and have been given a little bit of time, a kind of mohla, in order to think about whether we're really ready for the last gathering or not. Um, and I think a lot of people have confrontations with themselves during the Hajj that really help them to pull their lives together, uh, sort out family issues, sort out debts, um, try and remember as one is supposed to when one is really in a state of good prayer, the things that one most urgently needs to put right about one's life and about oneself. A lot of people have those moments of self-awareness, which I suspect are the real souvenirs, the things that people really bring back with them and may well treasure so much and consider to be so private that they never tell anybody about them, but a kind of luminous treasures, diamonds that they keep in their hearts that they consult sometimes when they're feeling down and that help them to remain on the straight path. Sheikh Abdekim, is there any other reflection you'd like to add that I didn't ask you about directly? Any other memory? <laughs> well, I think everybody at this time, although we're not on the Hajj, should remember the Kaaba and should remember the Hajj and the mystery of it and the majesty of it and should hopefully feel their heart yearning for the house. Imam Ghazali, when he talks about the Hajj, says the beginning of it is an ishtiyaqo ilal bayt, the longing for the house, which is a very characteristically mysterious Muslim impulse. Of course, it's inculcated each time we pray because of the qibla. Uh, we know that when we die, inshallah, we'll be facing the Qibla. The house is important. It's the, the this-worldly orientation that represents the Godward direction which Islam seeks to instill within our lives. So longing for the house, reverence for the house, a sense of amazement at the house, uh, and a sense of taqwa, and a sense of self-awareness, and the need for correct adab which is one of the things that physical proximity to the house inculcates, uh, is something that we can all benefit from, even if we're not on the Hajj, to think about the Kaaba, to feel one's heart move, to remember where the Qibla is, uh, to remember that Allah is actually omnipresent, even though that is his house. Uh, these are gifts that I think we can benefit from in this season. Um, and we ask Allah to increase his house in protection and in honor and in the number of its visitors and the quality of its custodians, inshallah, bestow the tawbah-giving benefits of, of the house on the ummah until the last day. Amen.
Sheikh Abdul Hakim's descriptions of the carnival atmosphere of the Hajj and the enigma of its rituals and what he spoke of as the overall inexplicability of the Hajj and its alchemical effects on the soul really sums up the entirety of what we have heard in this podcast from so many different voices across the world about the Hajj. It is an experience unlike any other, in a place so different from every other, a place which is a sanctuary in the fullest sense for persons, animals, minerals, and seen and unseen beings, all of whom have protection in this place, who are shaded by law and divine mercy, a place which requires the utmost courtesy from its visitors, and which we can show as pilgrims if we indeed imagine ourselves as custodians, carers, and guardians of the natural world, and travelers in the fullest sense, here to pass through and return back to God. That, of course, as Sheikh Abdul Hakim has left us with today, requires cultivating some slowness in our movement towards and within the holy cities, so that we may prepare our bodies and spirits for the transformation to follow. As he said, we need time to transition from the profane to the sacred. As we conclude our series, Sheikh Abd Hakim's prayer for all of us seems to perfectly encapsulate one of the central themes of this podcast, to increase yearning and longing for the sacred house and prayerful, and prayerful intentions to return to it. I want to thank him once again and thank all our guests for their generous contributions to this series and for bringing life and meaning into our reflections upon Hajj this year. And most sincere thanks to all of you for tuning into this series. If you benefited from this podcast, then please consider making a donation to the college today to ensure it continues training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Thank you very much and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.